Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gambles Farr, and today I will be speaking to Dr. Ernest Grant, the Norma J. Shoemaker Honorary Lecturer. Welcome, Dr. Grant. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to take a, a moment and introduce you properly. Dr. Ernest Grant is the immediate past president of the American Nurses Association, also known as ANA, the world's largest nurses organization representing the interests of the nation's 4.3 million registered nurses. He is the first man to be elected to the office of president of the American Nurses Association in its 127 years of existence, quite a feat. A distinguished leader, Dr. Grant has more than 30 years of nursing experience and is an internationally recognized burn care and fire safety expert. He also serves as adjunct faculty for UNC, Chapel Hill School of Nursing, where he works with undergraduate and graduate nursing students in the classroom and clinical settings. For the past four years in a row, Dr. Grant has been recognized by modern healthcare medicine as one of 50 influential clinical executives in healthcare and as one of 100 most influential people in healthcare. In 2002, President George W. Bush presented Dr. Grant with a Nurse of the Year Award for his work treating burn victims from the World Trade Center site. He was inducted as a fellow into the American Academy of Nursing in 2014, and Dr. Grant holds a BSN from North Carolina Central University and the MSN and PhD degrees from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Welcome, Dr. Grant, and thank you so much for this immense honor of being able to host this podcast with you today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. After that long introduction, I don't know if we'll have enough time. It's a well, <laughs> it's a well-deserved, hard-earned, hard-fought introduction, mm -hmm. and we are all just so thankful mm -hmm. to have you here. Today, we're going to talk about the nursing shortage in the country, especially how that relates to what has happened pre-pandemic, but especially what has happened post-pandemic. But before we start that, I just wanted to ask you if you had any disclosures you wanted to get out of the way. Thank you for asking. I have no disclosures. The only thing I guess perhaps is just in my role as president of the American Nurses Association, we began to tackle this issue, but as far as financial or any other uh, compensation, no. Thank you so much for that. So the burning question everybody wants to know, why are nurses leaving? Oh, that is the $64 million question. And uh, nurses are leaving for a number of reasons. As I'm sure a lot of the listeners would realize or, or recognize, this shortage is nothing new. This was predicted years ago. And we as a profession, we as members of the healthcare team altogether failed to heed the warnings that were coming along. And of course, as more and more nurses began to retire, particularly baby boomers, they fell to replace them. We're only graduating about 250,000 new nurses per year in the uh, United States. And when you stop and think, well, when the pandemic occurred, we we're already short about a half a million to a million nurses. It's hard to backfill that hole when you don't have enough nurses to replace the ones who are retiring or choosing to go to either another profession or just choosing not to work in nursing altogether. One of the other things that uh, we need to take into consideration as well is when the pandemic happened, a lot of older nurses, if you remember when the pandemic happened, it was the older people who were affected first. 
and a lot of older nurses decided that, well, I'm going to go ahead and retire now because I don't want to take the risk of either contracting this virus because, again, in the first few months when it hit the shores of America, we had no idea how it was spread. And a lot of nurses felt, well, I don't want to take this chance of either contracting it or, worse yet, bringing it home to my family. So uh, a lot of older nurses retired in droves, and that, too, led to significant shortage also. We also have a lot of younger nurses who perhaps do not want to remain at the bedside. They go on to become either advanced practice nurses, which there's nothing wrong with that. I applaud them for wanting to uh, to do that. Or perhaps they want to branch out away from the acute care setting as well. And that too contributed uh, to the significant shortage that we're seeing. And finally, the last thing is there's not enough nurse faculty. Well, you know, there's a lot of people as I've traveled the country over the last four or five years and talked with deans and directors of nursing programs, they will say, oh, we have a waiting list, but the problem is we don't have enough faculty. We're doing everything we can to try to turn out more nurses, uh, offering classes at nights, offering classes on the weekends, but you have to have enough faculty to do that and enough clinical space for those uh, individuals who want to become nurses as well. So sorry for the long answer, but that's uh, that's what it takes no, to, I... you know, to get people to understand that this has been happening for, for quite some time. Yes, it didn't just happen overnight, for sure. And just as we knew that it was kind of coming down the pipeline Mm -hmm. that we were going to have these nursing shortages, was it easy for us to kind of predict where those nursing shortages would be hardest hit in certain regions, specialties as it relates to nursing? Well, it has hit everywhere equally, but obviously, depending on which latest study that you read, one of the last ones that I saw said that the significant of the shortage was mostly in the southeast. When you look at the heavily populated uh, sections of the country, and especially the major metropolitan places where you wouldn't expect to see large employment of nurses, you know, if you think of Atlanta, Charlotte, Washington, D.C., New York City, those are places that are really experiencing the shortage significantly. Specialty areas, obviously the intensive care units, the emergency departments. And of course, let's not forget about long-term care as well, because remember during the pandemic, there was a shift with a shortage of registered nurses in the acute care setting. Hospitals began to hire LPNs back from long-term care, which, you know, obviously the domino effect is that, okay, now we created a shortage of LPNs in long-term care. So they too are suffering also. So in kind of thinking of how the pandemic played a detrimental role in the nursing shortage. One of your colleagues, Dr. Katie Boston-Leary, the ANA's Director of Nursing Programs, gave a very descriptive analogy Mm -hmm. of the Titanic Syndrome. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what that Titanic Syndrome is? Certainly. With the Titanic Syndrome, more or less relates to the fact that we know the ship is sinking. Or in this case, we know, as I stated earlier, that the shortage was coming. But we didn't do anything about it. You know, we sat there continuing to, to play the fiddle, if you will, and hoping that somebody would come and, you know, and rescue us, you know, put us in the uh, the life rafters and rescue the the situation. And it just isn't happening because what we're seeing is it's causing more and more nurses to leave the profession. Actually, a lot of nurses aren't leaving the profession. They're just choosing not to work in the conditions that they're being far asked to, to work in. And that is obviously uh, having large patient loads, working long hours. You know, normally 
a 12-hour shift is now a 13, 14, or 16-hour shift. Nurses would tell me when it's their day off, they have to unplug their phone because their employer is calling and begging them to either come back to work or shaming them into coming back to uh, to work or at least for a few hours to, you know, to, to help them out. So to get back to the analogy of the Titanic is that, you know, it's the same situation while the, the fiddlers are playing, no one is, is really getting enough people into the lifeboats. In other words, we're not being thrown a lifeline to uh, help stop the, the leakage that is happening or, you know, nurses who are saying, you know, this is the last straw. I can't take this anymore. It's not only detrimental to my health, both mentally and physically, but they also see that they're not able to provide the, the best patient care. And it's the patient and the consumer who is suffering as a result of that. And in some cases, nurses will say, you know, I got dinged because I felt it important to spend time with the patient instead of going back to the electronic medical record and checking these boxes stating that I did or did not do something. Hmm. You know, so it's hard for nurses to want to do the care that they want to do when they may be reprimanded because they didn't check something on the electronic medical record. Yes, the electronic medical record had definitely has its pros and cons. Yes, it does. It's kind of organized the way that we do things, but it yeah. also has tethered us to that. Mm -hmm. And at times it does kind of take us more and more away from mm -hmm. patient care. As it relates to addressing the issues of nursing shortages and nurses leaving the profession, are there any organizations that have made strides as it relates to this? Yes, absolutely. The American Nurses Association, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, HICFA, AONL, some of the payers as well, we have a workforce task force where we are looking at, you know, some of the drivers, what are the issues, and coming up with a game plan. One of the first things that we did was to hold listening sessions and find out what it is that um, is really getting to nurses, that is making them want to either leave the profession or, as I said, just choose not to work. The number one thing is uh, they want a safe working environment. In, in other words, what we mean by that, that could be taken from three different, two or three different perspectives. The first thing is obviously when you think of safe working environment, that means having enough nurse-patient ratios or enough nurses to provide the care that needs to be done. Maybe not necessarily ratio, but at least enough people to provide the care that needs to be done. The other thing is you want a safe environment because daily we're hearing that nurses are assaulted by patients or the patient's families or even their colleagues. And you, know, you can't work in an environment like that. You go to work thinking that you're going to help your fellow man, not that your fellow man is going to turn on you and, and either strike you or worse yet, kill you. As we know, just recently in the news, two nurses in Texas being shot to death, a nurse in my own home state of North Carolina being stabbed to death, and a, a nurse in Seattle, Washington being shot and killed as well. And, you know, these are just people who are doing their, you know, going about their business, doing their job, not you know, anticipating that they would not be coming home as a result of, uh, you know, what's happening there. So uh, that was the number one thing was a safe work environment. The other was uh, obviously pay coming into play there as well, that uh, nurses should be compensated for what they are worth. And uh, I truly believe that uh, you know, that's extremely important as well. And there's uh, a few other things there, such as, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the chance for advancement or for leadership skills and et cetera. But the number one being is the safe work environment and nurses feeling valued and value to 
a younger nurse, you know, I've been in nursing in your introduction, you said uh, over 30 years is actually about 40, but we say 30 that make me seem younger. <laughs> but, uh, yes. uh, but, but I've been a nurse for 44 years and we've been through a number of these nursing shortage, but nothing like this. And in fact, September of 2021, I wrote a letter to HHS Secretary Bocera asking him to declare this shortage a crisis. It is that significant. And part of it is nurses want to feel valued. So value to older nurse like me is different to a millennial nurse. So we need to find out what it is that you need to make you feel valued or what can the employer offer in a, a way to uh, to make you feel valued. And again, for some people, it's maybe a portable 401k or flexible staffing or you know things of this sort. So it's going to be different for different individuals, but at least we need to recognize that a nurse needs to feel valued. And for this nurse, this is what value means. And for another nurse, value may, may mean something else. I think it's more importantly the ask, mm -hmm. that Absolutely. the ask actually happens mm -hmm. from leadership. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. very important. So leading into that, how does the culture of working with not enough safety, not enough staff to help properly care for our patients in our community, how does that impact overall what we're kind of seeing as far as trends in nursing? It impacts it significantly because let's say that if you're the charge nurse and you're on a very busy med search floor and you call up to staffing office and you say, I need one or two additional bodies based on the patient load that we have or the, the patient acuity or the number of patients that we have. But as usual, you're told, well, there's no one else that we can send you. So one of the things that we as nurses have done traditionally and continue to do to this very day is to suck it up and say, okay, Sally, you take an extra one or two and Ted, you take another one or two or whatever. So the assignment that a, one or two other nurses could have gotten, the nurses who are on that shift will take on an additional one or two patients. And then 12 hours go by and the next shift comes on and it's the same situation and they call up to staffing and say, we need some additional staffing. And they may need it even more because, you know, usually we staff for more nurses on days than we do on nights. So they're really going to need it on the 7P to 7A shift. But they're told the same thing. And then they're also told, well, if first shift did it, why can't you, right? So we just continue right. to perpetuate this. And it becomes an expectation that when you call for assistance, that they're going to always say, well, we'll tell them no, and they'll make do. The problem, though, is that it becomes an expectation that you're going to take on more patients. And that, we know, leads to the potential greater omissions or commission errors and could be uh, very detrimental as well. So the significant thing there is that we need to be able to uh, say, stop, wait a minute, you know, is this safe? Do I feel safe taking care of more patients than, than what I should? It's my license that's, you know, that's on the line. Right. And maybe I want to have, have a conversation about what are some, what are some things that I need to be able to do? Can I ask for safe harbor or, you know, or, or whatever to finally begin to put the brakes on this? And I understand that, you know, perhaps administration may be trying their best to find help to, you know, to come in and et cetera, but something really needs to be done. Otherwise it just continues to, perpetuate and it becomes an expectation and it shouldn't be that way. 
Right. And not only that, but when we talk about detrimental, we think of our patients, of course, but also what is that doing to the nurse themselves Mm -hmm. as far as self-care, mindfulness, rest, you know, all the things that we think of, a sense of nurses who work in the community Mm -hmm. are also part of that community Mm -hmm. as well. And so they themselves are also needing of the same compassion Mm -hmm. and understanding and time to rest Mm -hmm. and spend time with their family, just like the patients we care for. And we know when they don't do that, then it begins to show both physically and mentally. They're not eating right. They may find themselves taking alcohol more. If they weren't, you know, maybe having one or two drinks a night or the blood pressure is going up and they get those headaches and et cetera, or they become uh, very cranky. And we know that even if they recognize it and we've got a lot of mental and physical stress, but from a mental perspective, if they try to seek mental health, there's the stigma associated with that from a couple of angles. One, if it's on their license or insurance, that they sought mental assistance, that could be a ding against their license. Uh, you know, we've been trying to work with uh, insurers as well as the National Council of State Board of Nursing that when a nurse does seek mental health counseling, because it may not necessarily be work-related. It could be that, you know, I'm having spousal problems or something else. It's not going to show up that specifically. All they know is that if the their state board of nursing perhaps ran a check on their license, if they were you know seeking employment somewhere else and saw that, oh, well, you got mental health counseling, you're an outlier now. So you're going to be wondering, can I hire this person or not? And chances are they're not going to want to hire that person just because of that. So we need to change the landscape about that and the, the stigma associated with that and let people know that it's okay to you know, take care of your your mental health because it's going to make you that much more of a better individual and that much more of a better nurse as well. Wow. I just learned something. I had no idea about that. It's interesting that that would be something that would pop up, especially as we talk about burnout Mm -hmm. in nursing and in providers and other medical personnel Mm -hmm. to have a punitive type of reaction Mm -hmm. for them in taking care of themselves mentally. Absolutely is, in my opinion, kind of counterintuitive. It is. It is. It, it truly is. And, and nurses, just like our military colleagues, you know, how you're expected to be stoic. So uh, along with the stigma of people finding out that perhaps you did seek mental health counseling, you're really uh, scrutinized too, because it, it makes you seem like you're weak. Right. And, be strong. Uh, yeah. You know, right. And keep your uh, head and, up. And we can't all do that. Yes. Okay. Well, so Where do we go from here? How do we change this narrative? Is it something that we need to do on a local level, state level, preferably a national level? Yeah, all of those. (laughs) It it truly is. So first of all, nurses need to feel empowered to be able to be agents of change. Even if it's at the local level, if you're part of a governance committee within your hospital or staffing committee or something like that, work in conjunction with the administration to say, well, this isn't working. How about if we try this or we try that? Or, you know, there, there may be a lot of uh, trial and error things, but at least you are sending the message to administration that, hey, we're concerned. We care about this place. Most institutions don't realize, but if you've got an employee who's been there for five years, chances are that person's going to stay there. They're viewing that as family. And when family has a problem, you got to come together and, you know, let's talk it out. It shouldn't just be one-sided. So I think from an administration perspective, the chief nursing officer, the chief operations officer, the chief financial officer, 
I've always said that doing the town halls is one thing, and they're great to actually actively, and I stress the word actively, listen to what the nurses have to say. Because it's going to be different for different units as well. But gather from there. And also have that two ways of communications, letting them know, Yes, we understand that you know we're short staff, and this is what we're doing to try to alleviate that. And if it means bringing in travelers, in some cases they are a big dissatisfier, but it's a warm body that can you know help to reduce the load for you. And someone who's very experienced with the particular situation, or like if it's in the ICU or the emergency room or you know places like that. So as someone who can help to do that, but in the meantime, too, these are some other things that we're doing so that maybe we don't have to have that traveler here the whole time. But if we're hiring more nurses or having some other incentives for uh, nurses to want to come to work here and then ask them, what what do they know? Uh, Maybe it's more flexible scheduling. Some institutions, instead of doing 12-hour shifts, they've gone back to eight-hour shifts. Consider bringing back the older nurses who retired, again, allowing more flexibility with their scheduling. Yeah, even if it is just, okay, if you can come in for four hours or six hours to help just get wound care done or to help you know, if you're on a med search floor or help do other tasks that really needs to be done, again, another good way to assist with that. And you're bringing back someone who probably wants to come back to work, but doesn't want to work the whole you know, 12-hour shifts or, you know, because as I said, they 12 hours turn into 14 or 16. And, you know, the older you get, it takes longer for, <laughs> for someone like me to recover from working those long hours. But there are some potential solutions out there. The other thing I encourage a lot of the chief nursing officers to do, I, I encourage the chief nursing officer, the chief operations officer, and the chief financial officer to shadow a nurse, not for a day, not for two days, but for a whole week. Let them experience what it's like to not get a, a lunch break or maybe go to the bathroom once in 12 hours or to you know get a true feel of what it's like to be that nurse on that floor for a whole week so that when the chief nursing officer goes to the chief financial officer and say, we need more FTEs allotted for this, they understand now what you're meaning instead of just thinking that a nurse is a nurse is a nurse because that is not the, the situation. You have to take into account the experience that that nurse may have, five years versus someone who's just been out of school six months, what other ancillary personnel that may be needed to provide care as well, what about being able to flex up or flex down, depending on how busy you know, the particular unit may become as well? There's a lot of things you need to factor into that, not just the fact that, oh, we got a warm body and, you know, and that's it. A nurse is not a nurse is not a nurse. And then from a legislative arm, as far as local, state, or yeah. national is con- concerned, how do you feel about, I'm sure I already know the answer to this, but <laughs> nurses being involved as it relates to healthcare policy As it's developed, that helps create movement or rules as it relates to healthcare and medicine. Now you're singing my song. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I I pride myself on my baccalaureate education was it was instilled in me as a nursing student that if you are going to consider yourself a professional nurse, you need to belong to your professional nursing organization. And what I would tell students, I would take that a little bit further and say, You not only need to belong, but you need to be an active member 
underscore the, you know, the, the word active, because it's one thing to have your name on the roll, but it's another thing to actually be able to go and talk to your legislator at your, your state house or even in the U.S. House of Representatives or, or the, uh, the U.S. Senate about your experiences. You know, for the 21st year in a row now, nursing has been chosen as the most trusted profession. We have a lot of clout that we need to be able to use that to drive change and to get people to see that, you know, we are a profession and we should be treated like a profession. You know, we have a evidence-based body of work. We do research. We are involved in all aspects of, of healthcare. So it's extremely important yes. that, uh, you know, that people see that and understand that. And part of that is being actively involved in your professional association, you can go to your legislator and say, when you vote on this particular healthcare issue, the trickle-down effect, this is how it's going to affect the people that you were, who voted you to represent them, either at the local level or at the state level or even at the national level, so that they get a, a better understanding. Or even volunteer to be their healthcare consultant, because in a lot of cases, that legislator is depending on a legislative aide who probably went to Google <laughs> and uh, Googled something on this or Google is listening, <laughs> or is listening yeah. to a lobbyist who has a whole different interest on there. And as I said, nurses, if you're respected in the community, also you're telling that legislator, hey, I'm a member of the community. Yes, I'm a nurse. But again, when you vote on that particular piece of legislation, it affects me and my family as well. And I'm going to be vocal about it and let you know that I either like it or I don't like it. And here's why. So it's extremely important that we, we do that. And I understand that working 12 hours, 16 hours, you're, you know, you're really tired or you want to do something else, but it does take that extra effort to, to have your voice heard. Because the other thing, what I will tell my students, if you don't get involved, then someone who is removed from nursing, it's going to be dictating how your profession is practiced. And we're already are experiencing that. And it doesn't make sense. We're the only profession you know, we're treated as a, a line item, if you will. We can't charge for our services. We're included in the room and board. Who ever heard of that? Correct. It, it just, just doesn't make sense that you are novelty item, so to speak. I mean, if a pharmacist can charge for what they do, if a respiratory therapist can charge for what they do, physical therapists, occupational therapists, why not nursing? Why are we included in room and board? It just, it makes no sense whatsoever. Nurses should be able to charge for the work that they do. And in a few studies that have, that's been done, it's actually been profitable for the institution. Mm -hmm. I, I know they're, they're afraid of that, but it actually has been profitable for the institution. When, and wouldn't it be wonderful advanced providers could bill at a hundred percent and Absolutely. not 85%. <laughs> Absolutely. And One again, of my studies yeah. have shown people prefer to get their care from a advanced provider. So one of my mentors told me a long time ago, and I've always taken this with me. If you're not having a seat at the table, you're on the menu. menu. Absolutely. So true. And so I always take that with me. And so mm -hmm. I, it's so great to hear all the things that you're saying mm -hmm. as a battle cry mm -hmm. for nurses to step up to the plate, to help mentor, to be as much of the solution as mm -hmm. we can be in our own right yeah. while holding other people mm -hmm. accountable and actually doing the work to help ourselves. Absolutely. So. And it's, it's one thing, you know, like I, I, and I know that, you know, there's a, a lot of nurses sometimes and, uh, you know, who will 
become armchair quarterbacks, if you will, and just sit around and say, well, you know, it's not going to do any good to do this or that or whatever. But it really does make a difference when you use your voice and you show up and you tell that legislator, I'm a registered nurse and I vote. Mm-hmm. We have the same strength, like when you think of the retired individual, AARP, how the strong voting block that they are, there's 4.3 million of us out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, or independent. The main thing is, when you tell a legislator, there's 4.3 million of me mm-hmm. out there, and, of course, they're going to only be concerned about, well, of that 4.3 million, how many of them do I represent? But you need to show them those numbers as well, because I'm sure there would be some staggering numbers, and they're going to listen to you. So yeah. it's, it's extremely if LVNs, RNs, APPs <clears throat> can all yes. join together mm-hmm. as one collective voice. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, one other thing I, I meant to have mentioned when I was talking about my professors when they were making that comment about, if you're going to be a professional nurse, join your professional association. The other thing that I was blessed to see was that I'm sure like a lot of your uh, listeners who would be listening to this podcast will say, as a student, we were told to go to the local district meeting, nurses meeting, or the state meeting, or even the national meeting. One of the things that I had the pleasure of seeing was my faculty members being there, you know, and they weren't just there checking the role to see who showed up or who, who did not. They were there at the microphones. They were there chairing committees. They were challenging thoughts and things like that. In other words, they were showing us how it should be done so that it was easier. It was just a no-brainer that when you graduated, there was that application to join your state nurses association. 100%. And, and I'm extremely uh, you know, happy that I, I, I did that. Well, Dr. Grant, thank you so much for an engaging, reinvigorating conversation. I feel like I'm ready to go out and and battle the world. And I know that you will continue to do the great work that you started and will continue to complete until, you know, our consumers and the people that we really work for and care for, because nursing is a profession of the art, but we are evidence-based providers as well. And if we can just get the consumers to play a role with us and and also advocate for us as well, I feel like we will all do great things and hopefully this nursing shortage will taper off once again. And, And thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you guys for all tuning in. This is Samantha Gambles Farr and Dr. Grant signing off. Until next time. Samantha Gambles Farr, MSN, NPC, CCRN, RNFA is a nurse practitioner intensivist at University of California, San Diego Health in the Department of Trauma, Surgical Critical Care, Burns, and Acute Care Surgery. She also serves as adjunct faculty at University of San Diego Hans School of Nursing and Health Science in its nurse practitioner program. This podcast was recorded during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 2023 Critical Care Congress. Access essential education online through Congress Digital. More than 120 sessions are available on an easy-to-use platform. Continuing education credit is also available. Some SCCM members receive complimentary access to Congress Digital. To learn more, visit sccm.org slash congressdigital. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-827. 6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information.
The SCCM podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Find more episodes at sccm.org slash podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The material presented is intended to represent an approach, view, statement, or opinion of the presenter that may be helpful to others. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of SCCM. SCCM does not recommend or endorse any specific test, physician, product, procedure, opinion, or other information that may be mentioned.